Hey, Love Tribe. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my personal favorites, Cozy Earth. They've got something special for all the mothers out there. So anyone who wants to shower the special woman in their lives with love and the comfort they deserve, listen up. Hands down, Cozy Earth has the best sheets, bedding, pajama sets, and more. So today, I'm excited to share that Relationship Advice listeners get an exclusive 35% off discount. Simply go to CozyEarth.com and use the promo code I do at checkout. The first time I tried their bamboo sheets, I was blown away. The comfort level is insane. I just love slipping into their seriously soft and cool sheets after a long day. And for a mom who knows that the struggle of sleep deprivation is real, Cozy Earth's temperature regulating technology has been a lifesaver. No more waking up sweating or freezing. But what really sold me is the quality of the bamboo sheets. They are by far the most comfortable sheets I have ever slept in. They are made to last years, which they have. I think at this point, I have about six sets of them. And they have a 100-night sleep-free trial and a 10-year warranty. So you know you're getting something that is going to stick around. So if you're ready to prioritize your sleep health and treat yourself or the mom in your life to the luxury she deserves, head on over to CozyEarth.com and use the promo code IDO for an exclusive 35% off. Because every mom deserves a good night's sleep, and with Cozy Earth, you can finally get the rest you need. Let's talk about a struggle many of us know all too well losing weight. Remember those days when everyone was on a juice cleanse or just basically hangry all the time? That was no fun for anyone. Well, there's a better, more sustainable way to shed those pounds. Today, I want to introduce you to Row Body. It's not your typical weight loss program. Instead of all the gimmicks, they offer access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. But here's the real deal. They pair these shots with simple lifestyle changes, helping you lose 15 to 20% of your weight in a year on average and actually keep it off. Plus, over 200,000 people have already seen results with Robody. So what sets Robody apart? The support. They handle all the insurance stuff for you and give you access to a provider whenever you need them. And the best part, you can sign up online from home, no doctor's appointments and no waiting rooms. Say goodbye to those days of hangry juice cleanses. With Robody, losing weight is straightforward and sustainable. Take that first step today and say hello to a healthier, happier you. Kickstart your weight loss journey the right way and head to ro.co slash do. That's ro.co slash I-D-O. Sign up today for just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Remember, medication costs are separate. That's row.co slash I do. I do podcast episode 32. Welcome to IDoPodcast.com, where fun and inspiring relationship experts, therapists, and couples share tips and advice that will help lead you to a fulfilling and happy relationship. Let their guidance illuminate your path to happiness. Are you ready to create lasting love? And now, your hosts, Chase and Sarah. Do you have a topic that you'd like to hear more about or a relationship question you'd like answered? 
Email us at info at idopodcast.com and we'll be sure to add it to one of our upcoming episodes. We're excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Arthur Aaron. Hi, Art. How are you today? Just fine. Nice to talk to you. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We're excited to uh, hear all the information you're going to give our listeners. Dr. Arthur Aaron is a research professor of psychology at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and currently a visiting professor at UC Berkeley. He received his BA and MA from UC Berkeley and his PhD in social psychology from the University of Toronto. His research centers on the self-expansion model of motivation, cognition, and personal relationships, including the neural underpinnings and real-world applications of the model to marriage, family, and intergroup relations. He currently serves on the editorial boards for the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Personal Relationships, and Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. He has received major grants from the National Science Foundation, the Fetzer Foundation, the Templeton Foundation, and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada. He is a recipient of the Distinguished Research Career Award for the International Association for Relationship Research. We've given our listeners just a little overview, so please take a minute, tell us about yourself and why you enjoy this research that you're doing and helping people improve their relationships. Well, the uh, actually, I began this research, I think, uh, when I was in graduate school as a social psychologist. One of the things social psychologists always love to do is to take on a topic that people thought couldn't be studied scientifically and find a way to do it. And at that time, there was almost no research on love, and I had just fallen in love <laughs> with uh, the woman who's been my collaborator for all these years, uh-huh. Elaine Aaron. And uh, so I said, well, this would be an interesting thing to take on. And uh, that led to, uh, you know, uh, 40 years of research. Wow, that's amazing. And so your, your wife is, uh, was your research partner, is your research partner. Yes, she, well, I, she's my research partner on close relationships, and she's very involved in most of my research. I'm her research partner. She has her own line of research on what's called the highly sensitive person, and uh, you may have heard of that. She has mm-hmm. a best-selling book and has done a lot of research on it, and I collaborate with her on that. So mm. we have these two lines of research. That's awesome. That's very interesting. And we've read... Uh, quite a bit into your research and there's so many really fascinating things going on and and we're going to talk about as many of them as we can here today but want to give a little intro to your research uh, for our listeners that would be great well one of the things we've mainly tried to do which is typically proves pretty successful in scientific work is to start out with some conceptual ideas that give a picture of what we think is going on in this domain, and then let that guide uh, many specific studies, both theoretical and applied. And the key idea we came up with is called the self-expansion model. And the notion is that a fundamental human desire, in addition to survival, is to expand the self, to increase our ability to accomplish things in life. And one of the main ways we do that is by forming relationships, because in a close relationship, the other person, to some extent, becomes part of you. So if, uh, to some extent, my partner's perspectives, knowledge, 
resources, identities, to some extent become mine. And so, and mine become hers or his. Um, so that notion of expanding the self as a fundamental motive and the notion of including the other in the self uh, really guided most of our research. And uh, we've done lots of studies trying to look at the ways and uh, processes involved in uh, this expansion, how, why it leads to attraction to one person rather than another, under what conditions it increases or decreases the quality of relationships, and a lot of research on this notion of including the other in the self that, um, you know, in all kinds of ways from uh, when I think about my partner, my brain responds as in the same ways as it does to myself, the closer I am. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of memory confusions between self and close others. And, uh, you know, so those are the two main lines of research we've done, this notion of uh, including other in the self and this notion of self-expansion is a major motivation. Yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, talk about the fundamental desire to expand ourselves, and that's why we seek relationships and what we, we get from them. Now, I know evolutionarily we look for a partner to propagate and carry on our genes. Now, has this expansion of the self, do you think that that's something newer in terms of on the evolutionary line? Well, I think it's it's both. I mean, one of the ways we expand ourselves is by passing on our genes mm. uh, to our, you know, we expand through our children and our children's children. But also, um, we have to be, if we're going to raise children effectively, and if we are going to, uh, you know, be able to pass on our genes and mate, uh, we need to be successful in life. And being successful means not just surviving, but being effective. So this desire to be more effective, to increase my ability to accomplish things, facilitates all kinds of things, including, uh, significantly including, which is probably why it was developed, passing on our genes. You know, if I'm not able to live old enough or to raise my children well, my genes aren't going to get passed on. Interesting. So it, it it's basically complementing the other. One is complementing the other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think basically survival and expansion. It's also often been called exploration in uh, in some of the evolutionary literature are two fundamental things that facilitate our passing on our genes. Very interesting. And one of the points that we found in, in reading some of your research is that couples can really make their marriage work better by doing new or challenging things together. Do you mind giving yeah. our listeners maybe some more information on that? Yeah. What we think happens when people first fall in love or begin a relationship is there's a huge amount of sense of rapid growth, expansion, which is very exhilarating. I mean, the other's becoming part of you. You're staying up all night talking and learning about the other. They're learning about you. But eventually you get to know the person. And so that excitement, uh, that exhilaration that comes from that rapid expansion slows down. One of the ways we hypothesized, and now we and others have shown in lots of studies, that you can regain that to some extent is by doing things with your partner together that are self-expanding. So if you do something that is exciting, novel, challenging, um, and you do it with your partner, 
you're experiencing that exhilaration and you're associating it with your partner because you're doing it with your partner. And so, you know, in some of our studies, we've uh, brought people into the lab and had them do all sorts of crazy things together uh, <laughs> and uh, that are sort of fun and exciting and challenging. And uh, from before to after, in both explicit and subtle measures, they show big improvements. And we've done wow. studies, and others have, where we just ask people once a week to do something uh, from a list we give them that's uh, exciting and uh, together. And after 10 weeks, there's a dramatic increase in their marital quality. Now, this doesn't apply to, like, new couples, because you've got still the excitement going on from forming the relationship. But after you've been together a year or so, um, that excitement from forming the relationship usually slows down. And this is a way to rekindle it, one of many ways, but it's one we've done a lot of research on. Yeah, it's, it's really great. What are, what are some of the things that they do in the lab, some of the activities? Well, in the lab, I mean, we've just made something up to be able to test it in a rigorous way experimentally. So right. in the lab, for example, uh, in one of our studies, uh, we, uh, the couple comes in for what they think is an evaluation session. And, uh, and it is, in a way. But what they don't, and so they fill out some questionnaires and they do a conversation, which we record and later code for the quality of their interaction. Uh, they don't know we're going to code it for that. Um, and then they do an activity. And unknown to them, half of them are doing an activity that we've designed to be novel and challenging. We, have, uh, <laughs> we tie them together at the wrist and ankles with Velcro straps, <laughs> and they have to go across some gym mats about, oh, about 40 feet, maybe, yeah, about 40 feet, uh, pushing a, uh, a foam cylinder with their heads. They can't use their hands or feet <laughs> or hands or feet. <laughs> over a barrier and back and have to beat it, do it uh, in less than uh, so many seconds. Uh And we rig it, and they're given four trials, and we rig it. Of course, we take off if they're wearing watches. We take those off before they, when we attach things, so they don't know the real time. And we rig it so that the first time they're a little ways away, we tell them, oh, you're, you know, didn't quite make it. The second time, oh, you were so close. And the third time, we say, oh, you just made it. So they... (laughs) Uh, although if the third time they really blew it, then we, we so it wouldn't be believable, then it's the fourth time. Um, <laughs> and the control condition, they just, each of them crawls back and forth across the mat separately, watching the other. And they kind of enjoy that. They laugh about that, but it's not that excitement. Um, and we've done other lab activities where people throw balls around and all sorts of things. But um, the real-life things people do are, are more like, you know, uh, we've never been to an opera. Let's go to an opera. Let's take a dance class together. Let's, uh, let's go canoeing, you know. Um, typically, there are things that people don't do very often that are kind of enjoyable, exciting. My wife and I, we collaborate together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That may not sound exciting to people, but when you're doing an experiment and you're sitting and analyzing the data and you've spent a year with your graduate students doing this study, it's pretty exciting to see if it's yeah. going to work or not. Oh, yeah. And each, each relationship is different, right? So there's different, different activities that excite different couples. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to be something that won't be potentially stressful or upsetting. And it needs to be something that both of you would enjoy. Um, you know, my wife loves sailing, but I get seasick. <laughs> so, so it's not such a good plan. I actually tried recently. We went whale watching because I know how much she loves to go out and see the whales. And she felt so bad because I was sick the whole time. Aww. But uh, 
I tried. I took every drug you could take. It's still, you know, for seasick. Not every drug you could take, but every right. drug you could take for seasickness. Well, at least you tried. That's it's the effort that yeah. counts. Yeah. Yeah. Is there one or a couple attributes that evolve better when doing these types of activities? Like their communication gets better, or they have better intimacy, or is there one thing that improves more than the other in the relationship? I think what we've basically seen is their. Um, I mean, we measure a lot of different things, but their general level of satisfaction in the relationship and love in the relationship, that may lead to, and in fact, we've seen better communication, but we don't think it directly affects the communication. It affects the communication because they're feeling better about the relationship. Um, in other words, you're having, it's, it's a very straightforward idea. You're having a really good, interesting, exciting experience with your partner. You're having this experience and you associate it with your partner. So it's like, you know, rats getting fed good food. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. There's this association with when it happens. Uh, it's a very classic sort of event. Um, I mean, anything you can do that's a good experience that you can associate with your partner is going to make you uh, feel better about your relationship. And if you feel better about your relationship, that's going to have all kinds of other good effects on it, communication, sex life, everything else. Yeah, and I want to talk about, it's just so interesting that you guys are tapping into this fundamental desire to expand ourselves and then doing that with your partner. I mean, one of the things it also does is it often seems to lead to more inclusion of other in the self. You feel more connected to them. Yeah. Uh, We did one study where we measured uh, a sample of people. This was a large survey study we did with Terry Orbach at the University of Michigan, where we uh, surveyed people at year seven in their marriage about how much they are on a regular basis doing things that are interesting versus how boring things are, and then looked at the change in their relationship over nine years. And at year 16, those who at year seven had been doing exciting, challenging things uh, had a much better relationship at year 16, um, you know, more, more positive change. I mean, they had a better one to start with, but the change was greater in a positive direction. Uh, and much of that was due to, I mean, statistically, you can evaluate what sort of is the intermediary, was due to them feeling closer to the partner, to more connected, more overlap of self and other. Yeah, and, and one of the things in, in your research that I read as one of the case studies was, or not a case study, but a, a experiment that you did was finding the the seven circles and seeing how much they're separate or overlapping. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. One of the notions is that in a close relationship, the other becomes part of yourself. And one of the ways, uh, a metaphor that really captures it for people are overlapping circles, the classic Venn diagram. And so one of the measures we've used and now been used in probably more than a thousand studies is we just give people a set of uh, pairs of circles. Uh, one, uh, one pair is barely touching, and the last one is almost completely overlapping. One's supposed to represent yourself and one the partner. And we say, okay, which pair of circles best describes your relationship? And it turns out that that very simple measure corresponds very nicely to all sorts of other measures we have, such as, you know, overlap of... of neural activations when thinking about the partner versus the self, Um, uh, all sorts of memory errors that uh, 
So, for example, in one of the methods we have, we give you a we have you rate a whole bunch of traits: anxious, ambitious, artistic, for yourself and for your partner. And then a week later, you come to the lab, supposedly separate study. We show you each trait, and we say, "Is it true of you?" No mention of the partner. Is it true of you? If a trait comes up uh, that's true of me, but not true of my partner, I say true because it's true. Mm-hmm. If a trait comes up that's true of me and true of my partner, I say true. But when it's true of me and not true of my partner, I'm slower by about 25 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, if something comes up like artistic, I'm, art- I'm not artistic, but my wife is. But I say no, I'm not. But I am 25 milliseconds slower than on something that's true of both of us. So we include the person in the self very literally, our cognitive structure. It's hard to separate. And the more you do that, the more you, you know, uh, the more we see those effects, either in the neuroimaging scanner or in the memory studies, and there's been a lot of them, corresponds very directly to which pair of circles you pick. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we like to use the more uh, subtle measures so we don't have to worry about people just trying to make a good impression. But uh, that measure works very well. Um, and uh, I don't know if you guys have a website where you can post it, but you can just post the measure and people can, oh, yeah. can yeah. circle. We're, we'll absolutely post that. And I think that's it's just so interesting. And it kind of goes to the cliche of two becoming one when you're in a relationship yeah. or a marriage two become one but here you guys are are scientifically kind of proving that that this is what's going on yeah i mean it's not always a good thing when it gets too much some people feel overwhelmed or they've lost themselves but most of the time it's a very good thing for people the closer they are does it usually, I think you just answered it, but does it usually come that when people are, the closer they are, the better their relationship is versus somebody yeah. who is more self, self-centered? self uh, Well, I don't know if it's being self-centered, but the more they're connected to the other person, ordinarily, the better their relationship is. As I say, there can be extremes and, and funny exceptions, like if you're connected to someone, you're overlapping with someone who's really, uh, you know, a psychopath or something, or a really <laughs> difficult person, you actually can take on negative traits yeah. of the other. That's when but it could be in negative. the vast majority of cases, uh, it's a very good thing. Yeah, and so the partner is taking on the other's traits, but it almost maybe subconsciously. Is that oh, what, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, for the most part, we're not aware of how much we... It's not how much we have... Uh, become our partner, um, it's, and sometimes we're aware of it, but most of the time we're not. You know, sometimes we're struck how when we've had a conversation, you know, a couple sits and they have a conversation with another couple, and you come home and you talk about it, and you mix up who said what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah remember. Um, you know, um, we mix up ourselves and others. That, incidentally, is another line of research we started doing with a collaborator of mine, Rich Latcher. Um, we have this procedure where we can bring two strangers together for about 45 minutes and have them get very close. They do a bunch of self-disclosure tasks, relationship-building tasks. Um, recently, we've been having two couples get together. So it's like uh, two married couples, for example. They, within the couple, they know them, each other, but they don't know the other couple. And then they spend 
an hour or so doing these self-disclosure tasks as a foursome. You know, each question comes up, you know, who would be your favorite person in the world to spend have dinner with, you know. Uh, and each of you talk about it. And then towards the end, it gets more and more personal, you know. How would you feel if your mother died, you know. And you all talk about that. And, and what we find is that not only do you get closer to the other couple, you get closer to your own partner. Um, and you feel uh, more love for your partner. And in part, that's because it's an exciting thing to do. And in part, it's because it's an opportunity to uh, connect and reveal things you might not have done with your uh, partner ordinarily. I mean, I think, you know, the message about that is not so much you need to do our specific task, but when you're with another couple, try to make the conversation deep, meaningful. Talk about the meaning of life, things that really matter to you. Yeah, and, and there's there's so many, uh, over 40 years of research, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's so many interesting things that that have come up and that you've you've seen. And can you maybe just talk about one of the more prominent revelations that you guys have come across that you personally have thought that that's very valuable to pass on to people in relationships? Well, I mean, I think the, the two I've, we've already talked about, I, not accidentally that I've been emphasizing, are number one, the value after the early stages of a relationship of doing things that are challenging, novel, exciting with your partner uh, on a regular basis. Um, and the other is this sense of inclusion. Uh, the inclusion thing is really important from a theoretical point of view. Uh, it doesn't so much have direct applied implications. Um, I think of the most of the research we've done, probably the, uh, the main uh, finding would be this one of uh, doing exciting things with your partner. Um, there's a lot of other research on the general idea that people have linked with some of our work. Uh, so, for example, another thing that's very valuable for people to do regularly in their relationship doesn't come from our research, but it, it also has this effect, uh, positive effect, which is uh, called capitalization. I don't know if you've talked about this with anyone no. Um, uh, research by uh, Shelley Gable at University of California, Santa Barbara, Harry Reese at Buffalo and others. Um, the idea is celebrate your partner's successes. Um, it turns out if your partner has something good happen, uh, you know, they get a promotion or even they just find something that's been lost they've really been struggling for, mm-hmm. uh, celebrate it. Uh, I mean, it has to be sincere. You don't want to be, uh, you know, making fun of them. But... Uh, to the extent you can do that, that's even more beneficial than um, uh, supporting them when things go badly. Um, it's like really, and it's enjoyable. You know, it's again, it's it's kind of an enjoyable thing you have with your partner. It's not just their success; you're appreciating it. They appreciate it more, and then that also strengthens the relationship. What do you find is the most common reason from your research that couples will struggle in their relationship? Well, I mean, I mean, I think the biggest reasons couples struggle is not so much from our research. It's uh, the literature finds in general are factors. Uh, I mean, the biggest one is just external stressors. You know, if you have a child die or you have, uh, you know, you're living in a war zone or you lose your job or your partner loses uh, your job or his or her job. Uh, I mean, those are huge. 
Um, and then another is, of course, support from family and friends. Uh, when, you know, your family and friends don't approve of your partner or you have trouble with your in-laws, you know, those, that's really difficult. And then the, probably the biggest, uh, certainly in, uh, among people not living in war zones or something, is probably uh, the uh, mental health of the people involved. Mm-hmm. If either partner is depressed or anxious or insecure, uh, it really hurts. And, and actually, we did some research on this years ago. If, if you tend to be a very happy person, uh, that tends to pass on to the relationship you're happy mm-hmm. with your partner. So, I mean, one of the biggest things you can do to improve your relationship is to look at yourself and say, could I get therapy or learn to meditate or take medication or do something to make me less depressed and anxious or insecure? And that's going to do more for your relationship than almost anything you can do. Um, And then there's communication skills, of course. So those are some of the biggies. And, you know, most of the work that's been done in the field has focused on sort of what makes things go badly. Our work is focused, okay, if things are okay, what can make them go even better? And that's where the doing exciting and challenging things come in. Absolutely. As well as other things people are doing, like capitalization, the getting excited about your partner's successes and so forth. Expressing gratitude is another one that there's some nice research on. Yeah, and we've we've definitely had those things come up and and we've we've gratitude. Yeah, mm-hmm. gratitude, but but primarily yeah. talking about trying new things and we've heard it said a lot, but it's just interesting that you guys are taking it to the lab and scientifically proving it. I really love it. Yeah, we have a study that's uh just come out uh where we had people in the scanner uh, play a exciting or a kind of boring video game with their partner. One's in the scanner and one's out of the scanner, and you both have the, you know, <laughs> the screen in front of you. And again, you know, we get this uh, this response, the same one we find when people first fall in love. Oh, that's another set of studies that might interest you. We've done some studies of people who've been together for 20, 30, 40 years uh, who claim to be very intensely in love. And it turns out, when we put these people in the scanner, they show the same neural response when looking at a picture of their partner as people who've just fallen in love. Wow. Um, wow. Huh. And, um, I mean, you know, some of these people are like in their 70s. They've been married 40 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we interview them, you know, I mean, these are not just happy couples. Yeah. We did a survey, and some 30% of uh, Americans who've been married over 10 years will say they are very intensely in love with their partner, and I'm sure they are. But here we're talking about very, very intensely. Hmm. And uh, I mean, one couple we interviewed, uh, my collaborator actually did the interview, Bianca Acevedo, but she was telling me that the couple came in, they were in their 70s, I think, and they were saying to her, we really annoy our friends because we're always all over each other. That's awesome. So, I mean, (laughs) what this tells us is we don't know yet what makes these people different. We're trying to get a grant to study this, what makes it possible. But it is saying it is possible. Um, And, you know, couples don't always like to hear this because we one of the ways we feel good about our relationship is comparing ourselves to other couples. Right. Um, And this sets a pretty high standard. On the other hand, it's a kind of kick in the pants to say, well, don't just assume it has to be sort of dull and okay. It can be better. Mm-hmm. Whether every couple can achieve, you know, that extreme level, we don't know, but it certainly can be better. 
Where did you find these extremely in love 70-year-old <laughs> couples? Oh, we, uh, we, uh, we, you know, through various media and stuff, we tried to advertise for them. And we weren't getting very many. We were getting a few. And uh, I somehow had a contact with a reporter from the Wall Street Journal who wanted to, uh, he'd heard about the study informally and wanted to know if he could video some of, you know, do a story on people being scammed. And I said, well, we don't usually do it when a study's partly underway. But if you will do the story and put in the journal that we're looking for subjects who meet huh. these conditions, we'll let you film. So they did that. The story came out, and we got, you know, they had to be in the New York area because we were doing our scanning there. And we got, right. you know, uh, people that way. But, you know, we had to, like, reach, you know, a million people or whatever the, you know, the subscription rate is in the, yeah. of the uh, Wall Street Journal to find wow. them. And they had to also be people willing to come into the lab and who had time to and so forth. Of course. Yeah, I mean, I just, I love the research you're doing and we could talk all day about all the, the amazing things you're finding, but we're going to move on to the his and her round where Sarah and I each ask a question that's on our minds. Sarah's up first. My question relates to just a, a thought you said a couple minutes ago about when the relationship is good, then doing these studies or doing novel activities can really help the relationship even more. Have you ever worked with anybody where their relationship was bad and then these novel activities didn't even help at all? Or maybe it did, but it just took a little more time? My, I'm trying to remember, but we've looked at that and it looks like uh, it helps uh, across the board. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unless the couple is so conflictual that when they try to do something together, it you know, gives them a source of conflict, um, you, you probably want to be more careful in what you pick to do. One of our recent studies, uh, we looked at something called rediscovery uh, experiences, where you do something that you is not completely novel, it's something you haven't done in a long time, but that was really successful. Uh, made you feel really good. And, and that uh, turns out to be more consistently mm -hmm. <laughs> positive because you don't have to worry about, you know, trying something that doesn't work out. Right. Um, so I would say, uh, you know, I mean, when I've, we've looked at the data, you know, how much does it help people at the low end, how much at the high end? We get about the same effects across the board. Interesting. You know, obviously if things are going badly, it's not going to make them perfect. It's going to make them a little better. Right. Right. But but it, it's it's important to note that it more than often is going to help. So any anyone listening, try something new with, with your significant other and pick something that you think you'll be fun for both of you and it, it's going to have some benefit uh, to your relationship. Yeah. yeah, that's our experience. I mean, you know, there's always variation, but on the average, that's the effect. Great. Well, my question is so much of what we talk about in with our experts comes down to communication. Have you done any particular experiments with couples in, in proving how critical communication is to the relationship? We haven't, but I certainly know the research well, and it's certainly crucial. There's been this finding recently that couples who are under great, uh, you know, financial stress on, in poverty or, or crime neighborhoods that, the communication skills don't help much because the stress is so overwhelming. But among, uh, at least training them doesn't help. Communication skills probably still matter. Um, 
But overall, it's like a huge effect. We have not looked at it directly. We've used quality of communication as a measure of the effect of doing exciting activities. And from right before to right after doing an exciting activity, the communications are more positive. Hmm. But that's not exactly skills. That's just you're feeling better. Right. So we have not looked at that directly. I mean, the relation between communication skills and uh, and communication quality and relationships is very strong. Uh, some of it is, most of it is probably from good communication makes for better relationships. But it's also the other way. Better relationships make for better communication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably the stuff we're studying is more has an effect more that way. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, yeah, doing the new and fun, exciting things will help improve your communication. Yeah. Well, now it's time for our favorite part of the interview, the lasting love round. We'll ask you a series of questions, and you'll respond with great information to help set the foundation for a lasting relationship. We love it. Our listeners love it. So, Art, are you ready to help us build lasting love? I'm willing to try. (laughs) (laughs) Great. What's one thing couples can do on a daily basis to help improve their relationship? Um, Do something novel and challenging. Maybe not every day, but uh, you can think about it every day, but at least once a week or so. Is there a book or resource you can recommend for couples? Nothing jumps to mind. I'm so much engaged in the uh, marital research, I mean, in the, in the you know, basic research that the sort of reaching out to the world, I can't really mm-hmm. pick a good book. There's probably lots of them out there, but I just can't say I'm sorry. Well, well, I'll have we'll have the link to your some of your research, and I'll tell our listeners go and read it because it's really fascinating, and uh, we'll send them to check out what you're doing. And the the seven circles, we'll put that yeah that on there as well. That's awesome. Sure, we're getting married this year. Is there any advice that you would give engaged couples or newlyweds? Well, I would say uh, it's worth taking one of these. these uh, premarital communication courses. Uh, again, for people who are very poor and suffering, it's not so great. But for, uh, you know, there they really need to work on that. But for the rest of us uh, who are fortunate enough to be okay and, and okay in those ways, it's really valuable, it seems, to take one of these premarital communication courses. If you could give just one single piece of advice for a successful relationship, what would it be? <laughs> Probably it would be to the thing I said before, focus on your own security, uh, anxiety, depression, and if you can do anything to improve that, do it. Well, you've just given us and our listeners so much great information, and we've enjoyed hearing all of it and all your advice. And let's finish by having you tell our listeners where they can find you or your research, and then we'll say goodbye. I am at uh, Stony Brook University, also known as University of, uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook, and I have a website. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the number, but you could we'll find We'll add it in there. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> right. And I'm also a visitor at uh, uh, Berkeley where I'm doing a lot of research, too. I have a lab here as well at UC Berkeley. Well, our listeners can find all the information and links of today's episode on idopodcast.com. Go to the podcast tab and you'll be in the archives. 
And again, thank you so much for all your generous knowledge and for taking the time to speak with us and to come on the show today. It's a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. Thanks for your interest. Are you interested in learning five ways to improve your relationship on a daily basis? How about five tips for engaged couples or newlyweds? This information and more is our free gift to you when you go to idopodcast.com and subscribe to our mailing list. Thank you so much for joining us today on I Do Podcast. Head on over to idopodcast.com for full recaps of every show, relationship resources, tips, and advice. Your path to a successful and lasting relationship awaits you. Are you ready to create lasting love? You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com.